The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and this is our segment where we talk about today's trending news. I'm joined by two expert contributors, Professor Shayla Lawson and immigration attorney Alan Orr. And Alan just gave us some uh, breaking news involving Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee announced just yesterday that she's running for the mayor of Houston. The Congresswoman is entering a very crowded field. Uh, City Mayor Sylvester Turner is actually term limited, so he won't be uh, running again. But State Senator John Whitmire, a Democrat from uh, former Harris County Clerk, is running. Uh, Well, no, State Senator John Whitmire is running. And then former Harris County Clerk Chris Hollins is in this race, House City Council member Robert Gallegos is in this race. There is also a Gilbert Garcia and an Amanda Edwards, who's a city council member. What do you make of this, uh, Alan? The congresswoman throwing her hat into this very crowded field to become the next uh, mayor of Houston. I'm, I'm actually quite shocked that she's quite powerful where she is in the House, but the House can be daunting. Um, as a task. So it's interesting to me to watch these national leaders are now returning to these local positions as mayors. That's really interesting. Yeah, I I just wonder, I I know several of those candidates and I'm wondering sometimes, uh, Shayla, when this happens, the, what I'm going to call the big dog, in this case, the congresswoman may feel like the seat was not going to be won by one of the Dems in the race. So maybe she's a little nervous about the candidates that are running. What's your take on this? I'm also thinking that we're going to see a little bit more of a push toward local government as we're seeing a lot more issues within local governance that are concerning minority individuals and, you know, particularly people of color. It kind of reminds me of hearing recently that Stacey Abrams is shifting her focus into the realm of fossil fuels and thinking of ways that we can start looking at community organization to protect our people, as opposed to looking at big government as the only place for solutions. Yeah, and I'm sure being in Congress right now with uh, Kevin McCarthy as the leader of the House could not be pleasant for anyone that served under uh, Nancy Pelosi. But but let's talk, Alan, about this horrific mass shooting. You know, of course, our prayers are with the family members of the three nine-year-olds, uh, with the staff that were shot and killed at this school. I don't even know. Uh, at some point, as a country, these mass shootings have become so common. I hate to use that word, but at the same time, Today, as I was reading about the AR-15 and how it has been marketed to consumers, everyday users, not just the military, and how the gun lobby has protected the AR-15, how these gun manufacturers have gotten uber wealthy on selling it, then the news breaks that this woman, 28-year-old woman, walks into this Christian school near Nashville armed with two AR-15 assault rifles and a handgun and kills six people. I mean, where are we as a country and why are we just allowing these kinds of assaults happening everywhere? Schools, churches, grocery stores, movie theaters, it doesn't matter. Yes. So for me, putting off my lawyer hat, just being the political realm, this is the 33rd school shooting this year and we're just in March. And with this big footprint in the Republican Party now where they're trying to save children, right? Just last, on Friday, they passed the parent protections right. They're getting rid of drag queens. They're trying to monitor all this stuff to security. But what they won't do is something against guns. 
state in Tennessee. I'm now a new Tennessee resident. I've been here all of six months, and I recommend that Democrats move to some red areas and mix things up. That's the only way we're going to change the way this sort of works, is to get involved at, at the state level, as we just discussed, and vote <laughs> and change some heads. We got Martha Black, Black, Marcia Blackburn here, who's totally against any kind of gun reform. You can buy a gun at 21 with no background check, nothing, just walk in and walk out. And that's the way it is in the state. And there's a bill right now on the Tennessee House floor to make the lower it to 18, right? That's where we are in Tennessee with regards to guns. We can ban books. At the beginning, I'm a substitute teacher twice a month. At the beginning of the school year, they went through and they banned books. And every teacher had to take every book off their shelf to approve by the state. Well, why can't we do the same thing when people have guns or licensing or some step like that? to sort of save the children since that is their primary concern at this point. Where's the action behind the drama and the words? Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, that ties neatly into this, you know, abortion ban as well. All of this concern, empathy for fetuses, but when it comes to protecting children that are alive, children that need food, that need shelter, that need housing, that need protection from being shot and killed while they sit in a classroom, you know, we get nothing but pushback, pushback, pushback. And so much so, I was reading one of the articles talking about the protection that the AR-15 has from gun lobbyists and Republican lawmakers. There was a, a guy who worked for one of these gun manufacturer uh, companies, and he said he quit the company. He had to stop selling the gun because he knew that the gun was originally invented to be a weapon used in war, to be used by soldiers in war on the battlefield and when manufacturers realized that they could you know this it got very popular after obama uh, was elected and this marketing campaign you know obama's coming for your gun the democrats are coming for your gun this gun this ar-15 got you know enormously popular amongst everyday people and this guy said i just in good conscience couldn't go out and continue to market and sell a gun that i know was not meant to be used by everyday citizens. That was meant to be a, a wartime, uh, you know, gun. But yet, it has become so popular with consumers. Uh, what do you make of this, uh, Shayla? Just how it's this this AR-15 has become, you know, wrapped into the identity of so many Republicans. And it really is indicative of the the state of crisis that we're in because the AR-15 is an assault rifle. It is a people killer. There is no other function for this gun. It's not, I, you know, I'm from Kentucky. It's not a rifle for hunting. In fact, back in the day, people used to actually protest the fact that it would show up at gun shows because it wasn't a sportsman gun. There, you know, it showed a lack of sportsmanship to even be interested. So the clear flip, and I like uh, Ariva how you particularly point out the timing in the flip shows just what we you know what we started talking about at the beginning of the hour is the idea of what is the reason for this continual push other than the fact that we're still caught in this the system of very systemic racism and why else do we continue to have these issues other than the real protection is about something other than what they say it is you know it's not about the children and that's obvious considering that the us the ar-15 i think at least 10 of the most recent 17 you know out of out of 17 the most recent shootings have all you know the majority of these shootings that we're seeing that's the assault rifle of choice it's you know it is a an army 
vehicle that is now being shoved into the, the laps of consumers and has become their choice to go out and wage war against citizens openly. Yeah, I'm glad and you I brought just... up that statistic. 10 of the 17 deadliest mass shootings since 2012 have involved this AR-15. And it's almost like a uniform now. Anybody that wants to do a mass shooting, it's like they got a playbook. And we are learning that this woman that shot this Christian school up, there's some manifesto, there's some note, there's something that they're now digging into. And she may have had some ties to the school. She may have been a student. This is a, this is a little elementary school. The, stu- the school only goes from K through sixth grade. So if the woman went to the school, I mean, we're talking, you know, decades ago, ago, at least a decade ago, that she would have been a student there. Uh, yeah. Also, Ellen, what's so interesting about this case, this is a woman. And women aren't typically assailants in mass shootings. I think uh, 2% of all mass shootings involve women. Uh, What are we to make of this? I mean, so many things about this situation today are just unsettling. Right. I think it's, I think the sort of brief that we have is not gender specific. And I want to add a a little side point here that not only are guns killing us guns, killing Americans, they're killing people around the world. It's one of our largest exports right now. You saw the recently the president of Mexico sort of talked to president Biden and say, quit sending us guns or control the us guns that are crossing the border. You see in Haiti that it's illegal to have guns from the United States there and all the gangs have them. Right. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the global presence of American guns and what we are really exporting to the world, it is the are these killers. And this is what's really causing a problem in Haiti and causing a problem at the U.S. southern border. Right. So I don't have the specific numbers on those, but but watch for that conversation. And the president just did, did say that I do believe that the aggression and the sort of type of retaliation that's happening, regardless of what gender it is, these are things that government was made to reform and to monitor. These are things that can be legislatively stopped. And, and even if there is some mental illness, no mental illness is not something that is unique to the United States. And we still don't have these type of mass murders everywhere. So in all of these situations, it has to be something about the way we're governing ourselves or culturally associating ourselves to other people that causes us to have these common occurrences where people think the best way to resolve conflict is with killing the other person or some type of bodily harm. And I'm glad you brought up mental illness because, you know, we're, that's going to be next. Right. So there's all a playbook. Thoughts and prayers. You know, uh, Biden calls for a ban on assault rifles, which we know won't happen with this Congress. And then we start the conversation digging into the person's background about, you know, what her mother did, didn't do what her father did, didn't do, you know, how they were truant in school. You know, we, we dig all into the background only to, to come to some conclusion that there were some mental health issues that were overlooked, untreated, undiagnosed. When we know that the majority of the people with mental health illnesses are not dangerous, they are not killers, they don't go out and shoot people. Uh, and, you know, so we stigmatize people with mental health issues, one, in this, you know, really ridiculous conversation that we have in this country. And two, it becomes a distraction to prevent us from really having a conversation about gun control, because, as you said, other countries, people have mental illnesses, too, but they don't have access to the guns that we have in this country. So we don't see the kind of mass shootings in other countries that we see in the U.S. And, the, you know, look, the people in Congress as hip- you know, the level of hypocrisy that we see, as disgusting as it is, these folks, and many of them are men, and many of them are white men in the, uh, you know, the Republican Party, they know what they're doing. They know the, what the, the issue Sheen is. The representative that represents that district sent out Christmas cards with an AR-15. That was his Christmas card this year. His entire family, young kids, I don't know how old they are, but they were young, 10, 11, 12, holding AR-15 guns, and then now he's issuing, you know, his prayers. In fact, he's also the one that has problems with his resume, 
I'm saying he got a degree that he doesn't specifically have, but that's another issue. <laughs> but you see how strong guns are here for him to send out a Christmas card with the AR-11 on it. And he was also one of the ones with the gun on his lapel that they were handing out in the House, right? Guns that are killing Americans, they are dishing out in the House of Representatives, the People's House, saying this is a good sign for us. Oh, yeah. It's a part of the culture and part of the identity. I mean, that that's it. Like, you stand with a gun lobby, you can guarantee that you'll be, you know, heavily funded. Your campaign will be heavily funded and you'll be supported by the gun lobby. And, you know, Shayla, I think the thing that really Sandy hooked, that's the one where I said, if we're ever going to do anything in this country, it doesn't. it's not the shootings on the south side or the west side of Chicago. It's not the shootings in St. Louis or Detroit. That's not going to move this government, right? But when those little white kids at Sandy Hook Elementary got shot, I thought, this is it. But boy, was I wrong. That was not it. And we've had so many other, you know, young kids, white kids in particular, get shot and killed in these mass shootings, and nothing seems to be moving this moving the needle on this. I am curious what is going to be the conversation that moves the needle? What will be the shift that we notice? But I don't see any clear into it because I had the same feeling. It was so emotional watching the parents and how organized they were in their grief. They still took it upon themselves to do the most that they could to lobby against the, uh, against gun violence. And even in that, it was so disheartening to watch parents have to use the death of their children as an opportunity to say to their own government that this needs to stop. And here we are years later, and we're three months into a new a new three months into a new year, into a new decade, into a new century. And this continues to follow us. And I, I do hope it's something that we see more conversation about in the upcoming presidential cycle. Yeah, you're right, Shayla. These folks were so organized. I mean, they, they just pushed through their pain. They found purpose in that pain. They filed lawsuits against the gun manufacturers. Uh, you know, they organized marches on Washington. They went to the Capitol to talk to Congress people and senators. I mean, they did everything that an individual citizen can do, you know, a peaceful, nonviolent protest movement. They started and many of them have written books that, you know, they, they're on the speaking circuit. I mean, they're doing everything, even, you know, their kids that happened years ago. But every time there's one of these shootings, you'll see them come out, you know, and share that painful story again of how they lost their, their son or their daughter and nothing. I mean, nothing. I think it's just, again, going back to Alan's point, the persistence of racism and systemic racism, you made that point as well. I mean, it it is, <laughs> it, it, I the death of little white kids is even no match for it. I mean, I think that's the reality that we're, we're facing in this situation. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, something not as painful as the death of nine-year-olds because, you know, I'm at a loss for what we even say or do in this situation. But I'm going to talk about Jonathan Majors and the way the media is reporting this altercation that he had with this woman uh, and, and what they may be getting wrong or right about the reporting of that. We're going to talk about that on the other side. Also, our justice correspondent, Deanne Raymond, is with us. I see she's already logged in. So that means that court is over. And this is the federal bribery trial, uh, the United States of America versus Mark Ridley Thomas, that we have been tracking every day for the last two weeks. Dion has been inside that courtroom uh, and then here every day at 430. Five, giving us the latest inside of the courts. So we know the jury is deliberating. It's day two. What might be, uh, you know, holding them up? 
what might they be thinking about? What issues might they be working through? Uh, Dion's going to join us um, after some news, sports, and traffic and give us the insights, her insights as a skilled criminal uh, defense attorney about what she thinks, because no one knows, but what she thinks is going inside, going on inside that uh, jury deliberation room. Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Arriva time is the right time. More of Arriva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. This is our daily legal segment where we've been tracking the federal bribery trial of the United States of America versus Mark Ridley Thomas. The trial lasted for about two weeks and the jury has been deliberating now for two days. Uh, in the final days of the trial, we saw the judge uh, start to make some rulings from the bench that took on a more neutral stance. Some thought at the beginning of the trial, the judge was much more favorable towards the prosecution, but the ruling started to seem more favorable to the defense. Uh, at one point, it even seemed like the judge was becoming increasingly impatient with the government for what many have called a repetitive uh, case where they've only called nine witnesses, but had those nine witnesses repeat over and over again the same points. And the big question now is, did the defense, did the defense who put on a much faster, more efficient case called 18 witnesses over two days, uh, did did the defense do a sufficient job of advancing a narrative and then creating reasonable doubt? That's the big question, because in a jury trial, a federal criminal trial, the defense really doesn't have to do anything. They can sit down. Uh, It's the prosecution. It is their job. They have the obligation to prove beyond reasonable doubt uh, every aspect of their case. And in this case, you know, we, we didn't have any real big smoking guns. It was a lot of circumstantial evidence, a lot of emails, a lot of innuendos, assumptions, uh, and a lot of misstatements made by the government, so much so that uh, rises to, I think, a level of being troubling. The FBI agent that the prosecution defended uh, uh, relied so heavily on and was the prosecution's star witness made several blatant misstatements of the facts, so much so that the judge issued a special jury instruction. And again, you keep in mind, FBI agents are part of the Justice Department. And we found out in this case that the FBI never interviewed Mark Ridley Thomas. They never interviewed uh, many of the county employees who had information. They didn't interview anyone on Mark Ridley Thomas's staff. They didn't review many of the contracts and the underlying budgets or the processes involved in awarding Uh, L.A. County contracts to private entities like the University of Southern California. In short, the government did a really shoddy job when it comes to the investigation of this case. And again, this isn't a private defendant. This isn't, you know, some big corporation. This is the United States government. This is the agency that, you know, from watching the the news about Donald Trump, the, the Justice Department has gone out of its way to uh, signal that it's fair and impartial in its investigations of Donald Trump's numerous, you know, alleged uh, crimes that he's committed. So much so that they've appointed a special counsel to investigate Donald Trump. In one of the cases, uh, they've also 
appointed a special counsel to investigate Joe Biden because with respect to the documents being taken from the White House, they didn't want there to even be the appearance that Joe Biden was getting special treatment. I hope that that level of concern that the Justice Department is extending to uh, Donald Trump, who's a potential defendant, that we see that same level of concern when it comes to investigating local uh, former and current electo- elected officials, particularly those that are African-American who we know already face a justice system that is inherently unfair and biased. Uh, so whatever happens in this case, I-, I hope the Justice Department will review its role and that it will be held accountable for that shoddy investigation and, and some of the misstatements that were made throughout this trial, like that this trial involved an $8 million contract when we really learned that the contract involved was $545,000. Uh, those are huge mistakes, and they're mistakes that our U.S. government should not be making because, after all, this is not about winning. This should be about for the government getting at the truth and only filing and moving forward with indictments and prosecutions when there is evidence uh, that someone has been engaged in a crime. And, and we know the government has an obligation to turn over exculpatory evidence. But see, you don't have any exculpatory evidence when you do a shoddy investigation because you don't find that exculpatory evidence. So, uh, again, lots of troubling things about this case. Uh, Dion, uh, you've been in the courthouse all day today. Uh, what's happening down there? Two days of deliberation. Any indication about how this jury is leaning, i.e., you know, a verdict for the defense or uh, guilty for the prosecution? I can't say yet, um, Ariva, but one thing we do know, they are working and they are taking this seriously. At 7.35 a.m., the judge had the lawyers return to court to address a question that they had before they adjourned on Friday at 2.30 After that, at 10.30, they were back requesting a readback of the testimony from the defense's expert, Ann Ravel, their expert on California fair practices. And they went back to deliberate Ariva at 11.40. And then at 1.45, the lawyers were called back once again regarding a question that they had on a jury instruction. And these jury instructions are, they're, they're, they're wrestling with some complex um, jury instructions. So what we do know is that they are working. Yeah, you know, there, there's some uh, rules of thumb or, you know, things that lawyers think about how a case is going to be decided when jurors are out for a short period of time or when jurors are out for a long period of time. Uh, are any of those kind of urban tales or, or those notions about juries, are they holding true in this case, Dion? You know, Ariva, not yet. I think that I was quite surprised that they came back with a question so early and that they've had this many. But I think it's also um, an indication of how well the defense has done in their cross-examination, in their case, and in closing argument to um, highlight all of the evidence that the that the government chose to not include. And not only do I think that raises reasonable doubt, but also the um, the, the credibility of, of the government and even putting on their case. And so in this case, I was wondering whether or not they had already decided before they went back there because they had heard so much repeatedly. I was concerned that perhaps the government's uh, strategy was if they hear something enough, then they will accept it as fact and not analyze it. And I was wondering if they had their minds made up 
going back and that if they came back quickly, I thought maybe it would be um, a defense verdict. And so, um, as you know, that um, what this does indicate. Wait, but you thought if they came back quickly, it'd be a defense or a prosecution? I was thinking that it might be for defense. Wow. Even even with the level of repetition. But as as you know, that um, it's it's anyone's guess um, at this point. Yeah, I guess some of the pundits that I read thought that the government had done a really effective job because of the repetition you're talking about, because they went over those emails over and over again. And some of the pundits uh, were expecting that it would be a quick uh, verdict that would favor the prosecution, that they would come back guilty on all counts because of the case that the government had put on. But I, from the conversations you and I have had, I believe that it would be more involved because of the great job, as you just described, that the defense has done. So clearly this jury did not have its mind made up one way or the other. And clearly the prosecution did not, uh, the strategy of repeating itself over and over again did not uh, work to cause the jury to come back quickly with uh, a verdict that favors the prosecution. Now, we don't know, you know, what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day as they continue to deliberate. But clearly, this is a case that was not shut and closed. It was not easy. It was not, you know, as the uh, prosecution said over and over again, you know, this is simple. This is far (laughs) from simple. (laughs) This is far from simple. And there's, you know, theory of power, privilege and lies that the defense so brilliantly turned on them uh, in its own closing obviously is giving this uh, jury uh, pause to think about whose power are we talking about, right? And whose privilege are we talking about? And contrary to, I think, what the prosecution wanted this jury to believe, that it was the power of this uh, defendant, Mark Riley Thomas, uh, maybe that jury's thinking about what is the power that the government has and how did the government yield its power in a case where it didn't talk to the defendant, where it didn't talk to any of the defendant's staff, where it didn't put on a single county employee in its case? I would hope that that gives those jurors, no matter what they decide, uh, you know, concern, cause to pause, to think about what does that say about our government when they are uh, indicting and prosecuting a case that there are people out there that have information, but yet the government doesn't bring those folks forward. Are they really trying to get at the truth or are they just trying to get another you know, notch in their belts to say they won another case against an African-American yeah. elected official? But uh, we shall see. Lots of, to uh, continue to ponder. Lots of folks are going to be, uh, you know, speculating about what is likely to happen with this jury. And we know you will be there tomorrow, bright and early, back in that courtroom with the latest on the U.S. Uh, versus Mark Rutley Thomas. Thank you so much, uh, Dion, for your expert analysis and for staying with us. And thanks to the audience who have been so incredibly uh, loyal and faithful as we bring you uh, the latest on this trial that has captured the city and the state. Stay with us. KBLA Talk. 1580. She's the real deal. In real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. The way we spend our time defines who we are. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. I'm back and I'm joined in this segment by Professor Shayla Lawson and Attorney Alan Orr. Uh, Shayla, I don't know. Have you been watching the reporting on this story with John Majors, the actor that was just in that Creed 3 movie? He's, you know, been all over 
uh, recently enjoying a great deal of success. But the story, the way they're reporting out this altercation that he had with this woman uh, and the arrest that happened over the weekend is kind of troubling to me. What are you thinking about how they're reporting it? I, I think you're mute, Shayla. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. I'm curious, Reeve, what what's troubling about the reporting to you? I'm just well, curious about first there was he was arrested for strangulation and seems like some kind of domestic violence. And then we're getting reports from his attorney that the woman was having some kind of emotional crisis and was actually taken to a hospital and that almost suggesting that he had nothing to do with it. And in the midst of this, he loses some endorsement for some army, I guess, commercial he was doing uh, for the army for recruiting purposes during the NCAA uh, March Madness game. So I don't know, just the dude lost a big job. And if this turns out to be about somebody's mental health issues, I I don't know. It seems like we got to be careful how we report these stories out because he lost a job and maybe it had nothing to do with him. I'm still, I, I still, I'm a, I've been a huge Jonathan Majors fan for a while. I, I love his work. Um, the Last Black Man in San Francisco was one of the, my one of the best movies I've ever seen, and so I've, I've been really excited about watching him rise in his career. But I'm leery. I'm still reserving judgment, just simply because I don't know. And it concerns me that so often we want to throw our support behind people because it is so thrilling to watch them rise. But because it's because he was arrested and we still don't have a clear indication of what the, the situation is, um, what I understand, even with the what's happening with the um, the the ads that he was doing for the U.S. Army is that they that this statement that the Army put out was that they are pulling them until they have a better sense of the situation. So my hope is that we'll see um, a turnaround in which this can be resolved quickly. And hopefully if the situation is the way that his lawyers are reporting it, that definitely he'll go back without this being a large smudge on his career, but it's still a bit, it's a bit iffy for me. So that's about as as, as far as I'm willing to take it as a fan of his until I, I actually know a little bit more about what's happening in the situation. But it was really, really hard to hear. Yeah, no, and I hear what you're saying is that we want to root for folks that we like. But so there is definitely that sentiment. But I think also sometimes we want to dump on people, too. So there's also that where people are, you know, unca- uh, unjustly accused of things. So I, I don't know. What are you feeling about it, Alan? It just kind of, I, I guess all the back and forth is what I'm like, well, maybe we didn't need to hear this story until we had more facts. Yeah, I don't. So it's interesting. So as lawyers, depending on what side we represent, our story will sometimes change based on the situation. But from the facts that I heard, um, it's going to be a problematic for him and there's no win for him in this situation. Um, and even with the police sort of evidence that has been released to the public, the claims that even without her recanting her statement, there's still room to move forward um, in these situations. So it's going to be a difficult situation for him. And, and if I were representing him, you know, with my clients, it's a bad day if I have to go in court and argue for you. It's better to not have been in that situation at all. So regardless of what you were going for or the phone or the involvement or whatever it was, because of who you are, you attract a certain sort of stigma to you. And then you just need to walk away from whatever situation is, and then we can handle it later. You taking justice in your own hands or maybe aggravating the situation by having some kind of contact 
leads me to a courtroom that puts me at the whim of public opinion and the jury. So whatever he has done, he has ruined, he has definitely put a, a mark on his career that will not be able to be removed. I will say this, though, that the media seems to be having a field day with it and reporting it at all stances and all times differently than they have other people who we have on video doing all types of weird things to other uh, participants. So there is sort of a dog day when it's a black man's day to come down. I will say that they are eating him alive, but I can't say what the justification for if he didn't put himself in that situation, there, there needs to be some kind of call for that. Yeah. And regardless I guess, regardless of what it is. And I guess that's what I was responding to Alan. It's just this sense of like this frenzy, this, this over reporting of it, uh, and clearly, if if he did something, if it's domestic violence, I, I'm the first to stand up and say, hey, you got to be held accountable, which brings me to the story with Shirley Ralph, which also, you know, I, I hate to hear yeah. that she says that she was assaulted on a job, sexually harassed and was told by uh, industry folks, you know, don't say anything. Don't don't you know, don't report this. Let's keep this quiet. Let's keep this on the low because we don't want to embarrass this person. We don't want to create a, an issue. So if someone as powerful as Shirley Ralph uh, gets told that and apparently she followed that until now, she's was no longer willing to keep it a secret, although she still hasn't revealed who this person is. She told us who it's not. She told us it's not Judge Greg, uh, Greg Mathis, a TV judge. Uh, so we do know that in these situations, you know, women in particular, and sometimes men, but definitely women, are discouraged from coming forward and telling the truth. So we, there are lots of facts, obviously, with this Jonathan Major story that we don't know. I, I just, as you said, Alan, it's not going to be a good day from him no matter what happens. Even if it turns out to be nothing, uh, it's hard for people to forget, and people have made so much out of it. Uh, what did you make, Shayla, though, of Shirley Ralph real quickly? I don't want to run out of time, but but that story was also pretty troubling for me. It was troubling, but I also found it redemptive because it's the same time in which she's being announced as Woman of the Year. She's had this amazing long career that we've all followed and rooted for since Dreamgirls. You know, she finally got her Emmy, got her flowers, and she's using her platform to say, hey, you know what? I remember what you did when you didn't think that I had any power. And in the same way that she has always been such a class act, um, I love that she's approached it with a lot of humor and grace. She's not interested in joining some smear campaign. She just wants people to recognize the ways that their power can be utilized. And I think it's a shame that it took so long for her to be in a position to actually be believed that it, you know, she was told by the people around her to keep this quiet, to keep this hush for years. But I, it was the way that she was able to tell her story that I found really exciting because there was just a carefree powerfulness in the way that she described assault, which is not an easy thing to do. And I think um, of all things, what I took away from it, having been a survivor myself, is just the vindication of being able to use your voice and the ways that it can really um, uh, start to inform others about how to use their own. So I'm I'm rooting for her. <laughs> yeah, and clearly who the guy that did it knows who he is. Uh, and without her even naming his name, he's probably somewhere really worried <laughs> now, like uh, on pins and needles wondering, you know, if she changes her mind. Because at any point she could. She could literally change her mind and say after, you know, further reflection or after consulting with my family, my attorneys, my friends, my therapist, my whomever, or even just thinking about it on my own. Uh, I think I do want to share this person's name because I do. And a lot of people want to do that because they want 
that person to never be in that position again, right? They don't want that person to ever be in a position of power where they can cause harm uh, to anyone else. You wanted to jump in, Alan? It looks like you were shaking your head. With everything she said, I think it was restorative and redemption. And that's why she's with the vice president Ghana right now representing black women and sort of the the diaspora right bringing her jamaican heritage and being celebrated as everything that a black woman is and i think that it's it's wonderful and i think that more women should and men too should also be able to come forward yeah I, I do love that she's able to uh you know she's just had a phenomenal year it's been the year of shirley ralph right? you know she's uh, awards and recognitions and She's been out there for many people don't know, you know, and I've, I've heard her speak recently at a, a, a lunch in, in celebration of her talked about some of those hard times in the early days. She told this one really powerful story of her and some other uh, women who had been hired for like a, a I guess like a live performance, a stage play or something. And they got to another city and the production company decided that they no longer fit with the stage show that they were doing, and they literally left them at that city for to fend for themselves, to figure out how to get home, no money, you know, just it, like, we no longer need your services. You stay here. We're going on to the next city. And she just talked about, you know, calling up her agent and just being so tearful and, and now thinking back on that day, like no one would ever drop her off at a city and say, you know, get home the best way you can. So, <laughs> so kudos to Shirley Ralph for handling her business and being so successful and showing the world what it means to be a strong uh, African-American entertainment entertainer. Thanks so much, Shayla. Thanks so much, uh, Alan. Always a pleasure to see both of you all for your brilliance is always appreciated on this show. When we come forward, uh, we are going to be celebrating some other amazing women. Uh, they are winners of the Walmart's Women's History Month uh, Challenge. Uh, stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica. He's powered by 12th Gen Intel Core processors. Plus, save on select monitors and accessories and get free shipping on everything. Call a Dell Technologies advisor at 877-ASK-DELL. Is this the title? This is the KBLA Sports Minute with Ray Richardson. The news came out today that Baltimore Ravens quarterback Lamar Jackson sent a letter to the team on March 2nd demanding to be traded. This is no surprise. Jackson and the Ravens have made no progress in a long-term contract for the former MVP. Jackson's trade request was submitted before the Ravens put the non-exclusive franchise tag on him. The tag limits Jackson's one-year salary this season to $32.5 million and allows the Ravens to match any offer from other teams. Much more to come on this story. The Clippers are in action tonight against the Chicago Bulls. No debates, no speculation, just the info you need. That's your KBLA Sports Minute. I'm Ray Richardson. This sports report was brought to you by Original Taco Pete. It's Aaron from Original Taco Pete. Let us cater your March Madness munchies. Order with us at Original Taco Pete on Grubhub, Uber Eats, DoorDash, or stop into our Slauson and Crenshaw location. We'll feed you soon. is apparently the talk of the town. From the L.A. Times to our talk radio competitors. Hey, uh, there was a story in the L.A. Times about Tavis Smiley. Now he is back with his own radio station, KBLA, uh, black-owned and oriented towards the black audience. So, Mo, considering your knowledge of Tavis uh, and his audience, uh, what's your take on this? Well, I think in a general industry sense, uh, I think it's always good when there are more outlets, there are more talk radio, there's more voices and representation at that point. I think talk radio had been too homogenous for too long. Real quickly, is it going to succeed, yes or no? I think it's going to succeed. You think? 
There's a new sheriff in town. We're KBLA Talk 1580, and we don't black down. down. A heavily armed woman entered a Christian school in Nashville today, fatally shooting three children and three staff members before she was shot and killed by the police. Reports are that this woman once attended this K-6 through grade Christian school. As of mid-March, the Gun Violence Archive has counted 129 mass shootings in the United States this year alone. Last year, the group counted 647 mass shootings. Of those, 21 involved five or more fatalities. At least 50 people were killed in Mississippi and Alabama over the weekend as a result of deadly tornadoes. Dozens more were injured. Rolling Fork and Silver City, rural towns in predominantly black areas of Mississippi, were essentially flattened. A dramatic shift in U.S. gun culture made the AR-15 a bestseller. About 1 in 20 adults, roughly 16 million people, own at least one AR-15. The industry embraced the gun's political and cultural significance as a marketing tool after a federal assault weapons ban expired in 2004. And Vice President Kamala Harris has begun a week-long tour of Ghana and two other African nations as the Biden administration hopes to set a new path for U.S.-Africa ties that focuses on collaboration rather than crisis, a trip seen as a significant step forward towards revitalizing a relationship with Africa. The arrest of actor Jonathan Majors has upended the Army's newly launched advertising campaign that was aimed at reviving the service's struggling recruiting numbers. Majors, who authorities said was arrested Saturday in New York on charges of strangulation, assault, and harassment, was the narrator of two ads at the heart of a broader media campaign. Majors' attorney says he is innocent and she expects all charges to be dropped. For the first time, autism is being diagnosed more frequently in black and Hispanic children than in white kids in the U.S. The CDC said that amongst U.S. 8-year-olds, 1 in 36 had autism in 2020. That number is up from 1 in 44. A majority of black women say they feel they have to change their hair just to be taken seriously for job opportunities and in professional settings. Some 66% of them said they had to change their hair for a job interview to lessen the chances of being passed over due to hair discrimination. 25% of black women said they believe they were denied a job interview because of their hair. You are listening to Ariva Martin in real time, and I'm your host, Ariva Martin. This is your one-stop destination for today's trending news, expert analysis, and my unfiltered opinions. This is our second hour, so we are taking your calls at 1-800-920-1580, or if you're watching on the KBLA's YouTube page, drop us a comment or a question and we just might read it on air. In this hour, we are celebrating Black History Month and that means celebrating two African-American women who are making a difference in their own careers. We're going to hear from these women, talk to them about did they ever experience hair discrimination? What are some of the obstacles that they faced and how have they overcome them? Uh, you know, we know that black women are having a moment in politics, particularly in California. Malia Cohen, first black woman elected as our state controller. London Breed, first black woman elected as the mayor of San Francisco. Karen Bass, first black woman elected as mayor of Los Angeles. Barbara Lee, a black woman running for U.S. Senate. 
Uh, so black women are really making a mark as it relates to politics in our state. But when you look at black women and you look at women in the workplace, we are still sorely underrepresented in C-suites and in so many uh, managerial jobs. And one big factor is what some folks call a broken rung. Uh, And that's that first critical step to being a manager. For every 100 men promoted to manager, only 58 black women are promoted, despite the fact that black women are asking for promotions at the same rate as men, and despite the fact that black women are amongst the most educated demographic in this country. And for every 100 men hired into manager roles, only 64 black women are hired too. That means there are fewer black women to promote at every subsequent level. And that representation gap keeps getting wider and wider. Now, you add this to the fact that the majority of black women report discrimination based on their hair. You wonder how it is that black women are making their mark on the world, uh, particularly making their mark in corporate America. When we come forward, meet two amazing women who, despite these obstacles, are making a huge difference in their communities. We are celebrating black Women, we're celebrating Women's History Month right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Stay with us. the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. This is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time. And in this hour, we are taking your calls at 1-800-920-1580. In this hour, we are also celebrating Women's History Month. And we are talking to two amazing women who are making a mark on their communities, uh, despite some of the obstacles that we know women, particularly black women, face in the workplace. <clears throat> Joining me in this hour is Tina Sims. She is a co-developmental co-manager at Walmart. She's been there for 10 years, and she co-manages uh, $100 million stores, and she has worked with Walmart, uh, learned their culture, and just has risen through the ranks at Walmart. Welcome, Tina. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be here. Pleasure to meet you. And also joining us in this hour is Gabrielle Earl. She's a co-founder of the Black Family Circle Parent Advisory Committee for the ABC School District. She won a big award for her uh, efforts to help out families during the pandemic, uh, particularly those that are unhoused. She serves her neighborhood and other communities uh, in the get. Well, and she also works for the city of Los Angeles. Uh, Welcome, Gabrielle, and congratulations on that award. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, one, just congratulations to both of you. Both of you have done some amazing things in your career and you have overcome obstacles uh, despite the challenges we know. And I started the segment by talking about, uh, you know, some of the issues that black women face in the workplace in particular. And today that report was out about black women and hair discrimination. So I kind of want to start. With that, I want to ask if either of you, Tina or Gabrielle, have ever experienced uh, hair discrimination where you felt like you needed to change your hair uh, so as to not be passed over for a job interview or a promotion in the workplace. I'll start with you, Tina. What about you? Have you ever experienced that? No, not directly. I haven't experienced that. Um, 
I do get a lot of questions about my hair, though. I do get a lot of questions about my hair. Um, Sometimes I wear it down. Sometimes I wear it up in a bun. Um, And people ask about my ethnicity. Quite frankly, I'm African-American. And my father is African-American and my mother is Hispanic. So I see where I work at and in the past where I've been, Walmart wants everyone to come to work to just be themselves. Mm-hmm. If you decide to wear braids, if you decide to have a bald head or a bob or whatever it may be, interlocks, dreadlocks, it doesn't matter. And especially with me, I am a store manager. I've been a store manager for them for almost six years now, um, after, uh, being total of 10 years. Um, it doesn't matter to me. And I want to make that very clear as the leader of my building and to my community and to my associates. I am I'm an ally, if anything. I'm an ally from them. I am the face to upper management. I'm the face to my community. I'm there for my associates and with people that look like me. Some people may have different hair than I do. Some people may have hair like I do. But at the end of the day, I can't say that I've been discriminated directly in regards to the texture of my hair or the way that I present myself, I don't think um, in the past or present I've ever had that. Well, let me, you said something interesting, Tina, about uh, people, I guess, not believing that you're African-American or thinking that you're African-American, African-American and people asking a lot of questions about your hair. So what are the questions that you get asked? I can't really tell, see your hair if it's up in a bun or pulled back like bun. mine is. Okay, yeah. now I see your bun. Okay. So well, one, the- one is it is it real? I'm like, oh, what do you mean okay. is it real? It's, it, it doesn't matter. Does it matter whether it's real or it's not? You pay for it regardless. You comb it, it's on you. So it's yours. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I get, I'm very direct uh, when it comes to people's appearances and the questions that I've gotten over the years. So, I mean... To me, it's not so much about a way a person looks. And I know there's not a lot of me in this world. There's different types of people that are ignorant and don't understand. It's about performance. It's what you can bring to the table. What do you have to offer? It's more to just somebody's appearance. Right. How about you, Gabrielle? Have you ever experienced any uh, discrimination that you believe was based on your hair, whether you you know had it in a bun or braids or dreadlocks? Have you had that experience? So uh, I personally have not had that experience. I've been employed with the city of Los Angeles since 2006. So it's going on 16 years and I've been in various departments. One thing I can tell you about the city of Los Angeles is very diverse. So I've learned a lot about other cultures and religions along the way. Um, One thing that has been uh, brought to my attention is if I change my hair, there are questions, but I've never, never felt as though I was being discriminated against. Are you surprised, either of you surprised that in this survey that was done, this is Dove, the, the soap company that's been heavily involved in supporting the Crown Act and heavily involved in really bringing to light this issue of hair discrimination, uh, that 66% of the women that were part of this survey said they had to change their hair for a job interview. And then 25% of black women saying that they believe they were denied a job interview because of their hair. So I know both of you have said you've not had that personal experience, but those are some really high numbers. So I'll start with you, Gabrielle. Those numbers shocking to you that that percentage of women, black women in particular, have had 
you know, issues around job interviews related to their hair. That that's extremely shocking and very saddening um, because that can just play on your emotional and state. And I think subconsciously we're always checking to make sure we as African-American women are well put together. And so when you put yourself in that mindset already, and then depending on where you work or where your career is, that all plays into part. Mm -hmm. So um, I believe the numbers are accurate and I'm just thankful that I haven't experienced that, but am very, you know, just upset that people are still experiencing that. Yeah, I want to take a call. Sean is on the line from Oakland. You're on the air, Sean. Hey, everybody. Wonderful conversation. Uh, happens, you know, my better half is an attorney. She, she, so I remember the good old boys network that she had to navigate. It was much more um, uh, uh, her being a, a woman than it had to do with her race because she's lighter skinned, right? She's multicultural uh, in her background. But the thing that overrides everything is your intelligence. And, and this is my experience. And I'm 55 and and I've seen all these things. My better half told me stay out of it back in the day because she could handle her own business. And she did and still is. And, uh, you know, I mean, regarding her hair, I love when she wears her hair, hair completely natural. But, um, you know, it's her choice or any woman's choice to wear her hair. How in the heck she wants to wear her hair. As long as you do a good job, just remember, be smarter than everybody. And I have to tell you, Black women in general have to overperform, and the intelligence pool is outstanding. And I would pick every single black woman in a high-performing job over some of these people that have been, you know, given, you know, the golden spoon every single week. Well, thank you, Sean, for that uh, allyship. We we greatly appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks for calling in. I'm sure your wife, if she's listening, she's going to say, oh, I trained him well. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> let me ask you this, Tina. So I know that uh, promotions and women getting promoted, that's, again, I started off talking about how the disproportionate number of women who are in management positions you know, and some say it's that missing rung because you don't have enough in the pipeline. So you can't get more at the top of an organization if you don't have uh, folks in the pipeline. Some folks say we don't have people in the pipeline because there aren't sponsors. There aren't people inside corporations that, you know, reach back and say, hey, here's Mary. She just got started. I'm going to mentor her. I'm going to, you know, really keep my eye on her. And when there's a job opening, I'm going to be her internal champion, her internal advocate to really try to push her through. Uh, what does that look like where you work, that, that opportunity for the pipeline to be, you know, uh, to have more black women in it so that it's not so shocking that black women end up at the top of the organization. Well, we do, um, from corporate, from Ar Bentonville, Arkansas, we do. I have someone that mentors me and I utilize myself as a store manager to be able to mentor those. I reach back and I bring those along. Um, there's not many, there's, like you said, there's not many of us. 
but we do have that. And I think for an organization to really understand the power in having a mentorship program or people who are helping develop others to understand this retail business, it's huge. And I, I have a mentor that's not even from this state that works um, at the same company that I work with. And, you know, they're, they're older mentor, but the things that she has taught me are the things, the conversations that we have. And I think we talked about it earlier or someone said in on how we act or how we have to work extra hard. It's like, she's, she's mentoring me on how to manage and navigate through that. And I mean, there's been a lot of good pointers that she's given me over my time at Walmart. Um, I've shared, I share it. Um, I think when we get to where we want to be or strive or meet those goals, you said it, you have to reach back and help others. If you don't, this so-called pipeline is going to be non-existent. Mm -hmm. And we, we owe that as far as I'm concerned, we owe that to one another. Yeah. What about, and you're so right. And thank you. And kudos to you for one, having a mentor and a mentor that obviously is giving you sage advice and for you then following that advice and reaching back and helping uh, others as they come into the Walmart organization. What about you, Gabrielle? Have you uh, had mentors or advocates or champions in the workplace that have helped you as you've tried to either get promotions or move into different departments or different areas in the city of Los Angeles? I definitely have. Um, as I said before, it's been 16 years. I started with the city of Los Angeles very young at the age of 20. And I can almost say within the first month, um, I had mentors that were looking to see me grow. And we also have the LAABP organization that is, is continuously uh, providing resources, information, networking, and even on the job, regardless of what division I've been in or department, I've always come in contact with uh, a mentor. And I turn around and tend to mentor right back. The LAABP, is that Los Angeles African American, or, or what does that stand for? I'm getting it's wrong. Los Angeles African Black Personnel. Okay, so that's an infinity group within the city of Los Angeles that provides yes. support for African American workers within the city. Uh, let me ask you about this. You said you've been at the city for 16 years. You started when you were 20. That makes you 36. 16 yeah. years on a job today sounds like a lifetime. You know, people used to stay on jobs. 15, 20, 30 years retired. Today, most people leave jobs six months, a year, two years. How is it that you have stayed on that job for 16 years? Awesome. So and you're like an older been... millennial. I mean, you're still a millennial <laughs> technically, right? Yes. Yes. I'm still a millennial. I'm still a millennial. And, you know, to be honest with you, because the city of Los Angeles has so many departments and job classifications, you can almost do anything that you want to do. And so um, I started as a vocational worker, one, which was a custodian position. And now I'm currently a workinger uh, for the Port of Los Angeles. So I've held various positions and seen a lot of the city. So it doesn't get old or, you know, uninteresting. So Tell, yeah. what do it you do in this like current... it's been 16 years? <laughs> it's gone quickly. <laughs> what do you do for the port, Gabrielle? 
So I'm a Warfinger and there's only so many of us in the country and people are always saying, oh, what is a Warfinger? So the, <laughs> the simplest, <laughs> the simplest uh, explanation is that we're the keeper of the warp. We're responsible for the terror uh, number four and all the, uh, the um, vessels that come into the port railroad, just everything uh, we also have a hand in the film industry as well it's very exciting i'm in the office but i i have the luxury to be out in the field and do cursory checks and interact with people how and do you become a warfinger my... like like what's the career path <laughs> yeah. for that is there something you study in school or like somebody well, out there that's saying hey i want to do that how do they do that you, there is actually a, cer a certification for it, um, but there's other ways to become a warfinger. You would just have to have experience with processing maritime documents. So anyone who has any type of experience in, um, you know, ports and vessels or maritime, it, you could apply for the position. It is a, a small knit group. Uh, it's a lovely group. And to be honest with you, I did not know what a Warfinger was. And they were upstairs from where I was working. <laughs> um, but someone recruited me, uh, an African-American um, woman who said, I think you would be a great Warfinger. How many black how Warfingers are there in L.A. and then across the country, if you know? Ooh, so I do not know across the country. Um, there's me and, uh, we have one other woman who's biracial and we just, um, uh, said a farewell to another one who promoted somewhere else within the city of Los Angeles. So, you know, there's not that many of us, but. Why? And that's out We're of there. a group of how many? So there's basically two, if I don't know if the other person identifies as black. Who? Uh, I, uh, I think there's about maybe like 12 of us. Wow. 12 or 13. Yeah. That's uh pretty impressive. And, and you weren't thinking about this. You said someone came to you and yes. what they sell you on the benefits of it or the excitement of the job and what was attractive to you to make you say, yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to apply for that. So before going to the Harbor department, I used to work for uh, the housing uh, department, the Los Angeles Community Investment Department. And I was in the um, the inspection section. So I had the luxury to go along on rides with the inspectors and make sure that things were, you know, of code. So I'm kind of a hands-on person. I love being in the office too, but I also love to be out there and just, you know, getting to know the customer, our business partners. And it, it kind of, was a lateral to what I was previously doing. And with my personality, she said, you would love that position. And she wasn't wrong. Wow. Well, when we come forward after some new sports and traffic, we're going to talk to Tina Sims and Gabrielle Earl more about the challenges they face in the workplace and what they want women, women of color, to know about climbing the corporate ladder. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. Arriva time is the right time. More of Arriva Martin in real time when we come forward. forward. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. 1580. 1580. 1580.
I'm back, and we are celebrating Women's History Month. I know it's the last week of the month, but it's still important to acknowledge the amazing uh, women who are making such a difference in their communities. And this month, throughout the month, we have had uh, women from Malia Cohen to uh, Congresswoman Barbara Lee to our own Mayor Karen Bass on to talk about how they overcame the challenges that they faced in order to become some of the most powerful women in the state of California, and I'd venture to say in the United States. Uh, it's not easy for women, particularly black women. We talked a little earlier about hair discrimination. You would think in 2023 that how someone wears their hair would not be an issue, but it's a huge issue, so much so that we had to have uh, an act, an actual bill called the Crown Act passed. Uh, it's been passed in states like California and other states across the country uh, not passed yet at the federal level, but this act prohibits discrimination against women in the workplace because of their hair. Because the reality was that black women who wear natural hairstyles, braids, dreadlocks, or even short afros were being discriminated against, and according to this new study by Dove, are still facing discrimination in the workplace. too many women reporting that they believe they're passed over for interviews, passed over for promotions, and treated differently in the workplace because of how they wear their hair. And again, you you would think this is the 1930s, 40s, or 50s, not 2023, when uh, women in all kinds of offices, high political offices, are seen. Women in television, women in, uh, you know, corporate America, just women in any industry that you can think of, presenting themselves in different shapes and forms and fashion and different hairstyles. You would think that we wouldn't still be grappling with hair. Uh, When you look across corporate America, though, there's still lots of challenges that women face. Only three black women as of 2020, uh, well, in 2020, only 37 of the Fortune 500 companies actually had females who were uh, CEOs of those companies. And that was considered a record high. That was 7.4%, and that was a record high. And at that time, in 2020, none of those women were black women. Uh, In 2021, we actually did have uh, three black women serving as CEOs uh, in major corporations like Walgreens, Rosalind Brewer, came on board in 2021. Uh, The Sonda Brown Duckett became a CEO of TIAA in May of 2021 as well. We know Ursula Burns uh, was also a CEO at Xerox uh, some years ago. So women, black women in particular, are still not getting to the C-suite and getting to those CEO positions in ways that you would expect, particularly when you look at the education level that black women have uh, achieved over the last several decades, more black women in most graduate schools, whether it's law school, business school, medical school, uh, PhD programs, you look at all those graduate programs, they uh, have huge numbers or huge meaning comparatively to black men. You see more black women in those programs. Uh, Even in college campuses, undergraduate uh, degrees, more black women in undergraduate degrees than black men. But yet black women still get paid less than black men. They get paid less than white men. They get paid less than white women. The only people black women don't get paid less than are Latino women uh, and Native American women. So what is still holding black women back? I'm joined uh, in this segment 
by Tina Sim. She's a store manager at Walmart and Gabrielle Earl. She is a wharfinger for the city of Los Angeles. And if you were listening earlier, you got an education on what a wharfinger is and a career that you might want to pursue. But, Tina, let's talk. Uh, Rosalind Brewer worked uh, at Sam's Club, I think, didn't she, before she went over to Walgreens? Correct. Yeah, so she had... What was her position at Sam's? Was she a president or I can't remember? It was like, yeah, she was like an executive VP. Okay. So she had really climbed the ranks and had a very high position and Walmart owns Sam's club. Uh, what about now when you look at Walmart, tell us what, what the upper ranks of Walmart looks like in terms of women and particularly in terms of black women. Well, the upper ranks, I mean, every area, every region, um, is ran by regional and then we have it's breaking out into markets and those regionals communicate to home office um in my in my region alone here in southern california we do have an african-american woman who is a market manager um there's about 14 market managers and out of the 14 um jackie is one of them um she's she came through the ranks she was a store manager prior an assistant manager worked her way up to the market manager level she actually ran the um crenshaw Walmart um, before um, closing that store. So uh, she's she's part of my mentorship. She's somebody that I, I know I can reach out to what we talked about before. Um, we do have different African-American women in leadership roles in Walmart. Um, just recently, the senior vice president of consumables is African-American women. Um, there's different positions. I think the young lady talked about it earlier. There's different avenues that you can go into Walmart um, and be in a leadership role. And just it just doesn't end at the store level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one thing I'm always impressed with Walmart, I've been to a lot of functions where I've sat next to Walmart employees. And I, I'm always amazed. You talk to someone who says, I started as a uh, checker or a bagger, or even a greeter, and now they're like, I'm over 50 stores with, you know, $200 million in revenue or something insane like that. And you're thinking, oh, my God, how does someone who started 18, you know, bagging groceries at a Walmart become an executive that's now over a whole region and, you know, a budget that can be in the multi-millions, hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's kind of your story, too, Tina. You started out uh, with Walmart 10 years ago, and now you manage a store, like a $100 million budget. Did I get that right? Correct. It's $112 million. Um, I came from another retailer. I was a store manager there. Um, and then coming into um, Walmart, um, there was just different avenues uh, from compliance to foods. Um, there was just different things that I needed to learn. So. I humbled myself and took a step back and learned um, through the ranks and knew that I would be able, in my own mind, I knew I would be able to run a store for them and actually currently seeking to become a market manager at this point. And what Um, is, so a market manager is like a regional manager where you manage multiple stores? Is that what a market manager is? So a market manager is the next step from a store manager and they manage multiple stores. Okay. And then the market managers report to the regional who manage a region. So a region would be half of Southern California, Nevada, Arizona. Okay. A region would be Northern California, Colorado, Washington. Um, but my my goal right now is to become a market manager. I know that it's attainable and that I have people behind me that are willing to support me in um, getting that done. It may not necessarily be in California, 
Um, there's avenues where store managers can move to different states at Walmart. Okay. Um, currently, I have a store lead in my store who's an African-American female who used to be a department manager for me. She worked at Sands Club. Um, she came to the blue side, which we call Walmart. Um, Aisha Caradine's her name. Um, she started with the company 20 years ago. And she's ready to become a store manager. So wow. So yeah. so what is it? So Walmart must employ I don't know hundreds of thousands of people every year. We know retail has a lot of turnover, a lot of attrition. People start a lot of college students, a lot of folks get it. You know they don't like it. They they you know it's a heavy turnover industry. What is it that makes someone go into a Walmart at 18, 20, 21 years old, and at forty five they are still there? And now running a major, you know, operation with a huge budget, hundreds of employees, you know, you know, incredible amounts of responsibility. How does that happen? That's the culture. Um, That's the culture of Walmart. I mean, I'm part of that culture. Um, You if you want to grow and you want to have a career, it's there for you. You people just need to, you know, partner with someone not our our past um see um vice president dakota smith started off as a cart pusher he's he's part of a billion and he's african-american he's part of a billion dollar business and he's just recently retired so these success stories that you're talking about cart pusher cashier to running multiple divisions or regions is somebody took the time and help develop that individual and it's not but let me ask you this Tina. You're, you're a store manager mm-hmm. so you 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 hire people you see lots of people when somebody walks in the door are you able to say okay john betty they mm-hmm. got it i, I can see it in mm-hmm. their eyes i can see it in the interview they're going places uh think about that when we come forward i'm gonna get you to answer that question because i think that's the big question a lot of folks have is you know are, are leaders born or are leaders made kbla talk 1580 She's the real deal in real time. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. There's no time like the present. Let's get back to more of Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are closing out Women's History Month with a celebration of all women, but today we're focusing on black women. And even more specifically, we are celebrating Tina Sims and Gabrielle Earl. Tina, I was asking you before the break, are leaders made or are they born? So when somebody walks in that door in that $112 million store that you manage for Walmart, are you able to just focus in on them and say, okay, this is this person's going to be a lead. This person could be the next store manager. Do you have that kind of foresight after being uh, an employer now for you know over a decade? Yes. Um, I tell I tell my market manager all the time when we're looking at promoting um, associates, it's like, look, there's a difference. You can have all the knowledge in the world, but not wanting to learn. You have to continue to be a student in the business. I will take the will versus skill mm. any day. And you ask me, are leaders born or are they made? I believe we all have are born with some leadership in us. It's just sometimes it takes a little bit of pulling it out of us and being able to speak up and telling your employer exactly what you want to do. Be honest. Be honest with your employer and be honest with yourself. Anybody can do this. You just have to put your mind to it. 
I love what you said. I'm going to go tell my team that. Take the will over the skill any day. Okay. <laughs> that's, that's good Good advice. I'm learning something. Be a lifelong learner. I, learner. I totally agree with you on that, Tina. Gabrielle, I want to talk to you about millennials. You know, you guys yeah. get a bad <laughs> reputation. Folks are like, you know, they snowflakes. They don't want to work. You know, it's all about the quality of their life. It doesn't go on Instagram. They're not interested in it. So so help stand up in defense of millennials in the workplace. Tell us why all of those horrible things people say about them are wrong. And, you know, what your experience has been working around and with other millennials. Well, I can definitely tell you it's totally wrong. We're hardworking. (laughs) We're here. We're willing to learn and just put in the hours. Um, I've come in contact with so many wonderful millennials with a lot of innovative ideas. So I I honestly, you know, we're always talking about millennials Gen X and Z and all the generations, but it's, it's, it depends on the individual really. Um, So you don't think there's any universal trait, like this is vanity culture that's been created by social media. You don't think any of that's influencing the work ethic. Okay. I hear you. Uh, Miss Tina, what do you have to say about that? (laughs) I agree with her. I have, I work with a lot of millennials and my daughter is a millennial and she's very hardworking. I think it has a lot to do. And I tell my story, Maisha, this all the time. How, how you were raised? How do you what? How you were raised. Okay. How you were raised has a lot of influence on how you act in the workforce, what good work ethic looks like. Are you able to be trained? Are you willing to learn? Um, I think I think the millennials sometimes get a little bit of a, a bad rap there, but I've worked I work with a lot of millennials that are doing an outstanding job. Gabrielle, what can employers do? you know, non-millennial employees, what can we do, you think, to to get the most out of? You're saying, hey, you guys are hardworking. You show up. You want to learn. You're inquisitive. uh, You know, you want to do a good job. For those employers who may be struggling in getting that best out of their millennial work staff, what advice do you have for them? I think uh, really having an open-door policy. So, because the millennial heir that age group is very outgoing and has a lot to give and a lot of new ideas. So like in our biweekly staff meeting, our chief typically always asks, um, it might sound a little cliche, he'll say, are there any warm and fuzzies anyone wants to share? And that's great because it opens up just for open conversation. Let's celebrate the small things, the big things. And if you have new ideas, so. And that and, you... and being okay with change. Okay. Because I think as millennials, we're, you know, one week it might be this, and then we're flexible to do something the next week. So, and I mean, it may be good, it may be bad, but <laughs> trial and error. But I love that. You said millennials have a lot to say. They're used to talking. They're used to going on their phone and just writing out yes. a post, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. So the workplace it's needs all about to communication. listen to them, have an open door policy and listen to them. All right, uh, Tina, you manage a lot of millennials. What advice do you have for anyone that's maybe struggling, like saying, hey, these, you know, 
making these gross generalizations, which we know are not true for every person, but people tend to, you know, lump folks together and they'll say, oh, the millennials are this. You know, they say the baby boomers. They say baby boomers don't want to learn anything new. They're, they're, they're uh, inflexible. You know, they're stuck in their way. So every demographic gets, you know, saddled with some reputation earned or, you know, not earned rightfully. But what would you say, uh, Tina, to anyone who's managing a workforce that has both millennials and some boomers in it? I think as a leader, you got to take the time to get to know your people. Um, I think she um, said something really well in regards to open door policy. We have that at Walmart. You know, you can come in with ideas. You don't have to wait for a meeting. Um, most of the leaders, the team leads in my store or like department managers, they're millennials. Um, and just taking the time to get to know who they are, what they want to do. And they have, they, there's a respect level there. And I think if you take the time to teach them and show them new things, not everything's going to be a hundred percent. I get it. But I think the, the relationship building is key. All right. Uh, great advice. Uh, Gabrielle, I'll ask you any advice you have for someone who's out there who's stuck in their career, who feels like they're not gratified where they are, but they don't know how to make that next move. What advice? You've been successful. You've had lots of jobs in the city. You've been there 16 years. You deserve an award just for that. I mean, I'm just so impressed with that. What advice would you give to someone, a millennial, a millennial or Gen Z, you know, who's stuck? I would definitely express to them the value in networking. Uh, One thing about the baby boomers (laughs) is that they have a lot of knowledge and a lot to give. And so find you a mentor and also try to absorb as much knowledge as possible. Because I think, um, as she has stated earlier, you want to be a steward of just knowledge, a steward of learning. Uh, that will help you get out that rut to see, you know, go to the drawing board. What's my next move? All right. Great advice. And Tino, in with you again, uh, you see a lot of folks, you've advanced people, you've promoted people, you're striving for a promotion yourself. What advice would you give to someone that's stuck who says, I've been on a job X number of years. I don't like it. I'm not gratified, but they don't know how to get going. They don't don't know how to make that next move to go to that next level. I think the open, honest communication with your with your um your superior. If there's something that you want to do, if there if there's something that you're interested in, and to her point, she's held several different jobs in those 16 years. There had to have been some level of communication, open dialogue about performance and what you really want to do. What are your goals? Be honest. What are your goals? And shoot for those goals, and you have to communicate those goals. Yeah, both of you are in agreement. Communication is key. And I would even go further and say you got to be honest with yourself because a lot of times there's something holding you back. A lot of women we know, particularly black women, talk about imposter syndrome, not feeling like they are good enough, not feeling like they have what it takes to be the boss, to be the manager, to be the leader. So you've got to have those honest conversations with yourself. I was just uh, giving some advice to someone I mentor uh, and telling them, go back to the drawing board and look at what you were good at, what you got excited about when you were in school. Uh, And that can sometimes be a good way to think about what that next move is, because if you get excited about something, you're more likely to work for it. You're more likely to put in the time and the effort 
uh, to make it happen. But I, I just want to, again, congratulate you, Tina. Uh, tremendous progress you've made at Walmart. Keep climbing that ladder and keep throwing the hand back down and reaching down and bringing other folks up. Keep lifting as you climb. I uh, appreciate that you have been doing that throughout your career and just encourage you to continue to do that. We need more Tinas uh, in the workplace. That's how we're going to get more black women in those C-suites is by when somebody does make an inroad, that they don't close the door, that they keep looking to see who they can bring along with them. And Gabrielle, uh, keep uh, educating folks about different careers they may have never thought of. Uh, I didn't know what a warfinger was until this conversation. So I'm going to be talking to folks about that who may have an interest in it. But again, congratulations to both of you. You are amazing women that we are so honored to celebrate uh, on this day and during Women's History Month. Stay with us, KBLA. Next voice you will hear is Robin Ayers from the Raw Report. KBLA Talk 1580. KBLA 1580 Santa Monica.